0: Hello, product innovators. Today we learn from the founder of a massive international furniture company on how to sell your first units, then scale your product business.
1: You're listening to the Product Startup Podcast. Now, onto the show.
0: Welcome back, everyone. Today, I'm very excited to introduce Jan Cavell to the show. Jan was the founder and CEO for 20 years of Jan Cavell Furniture Company, which designed, manufactured, and sold their own furniture to wholesalers all over the world, starting with just one piece. She's also the author of Scale for Success, a book that helps startups go from their first sales to becoming a multi-million dollar empire. Today, Jan's going to share some valuable knowledge on how inventors, startups, and small manufacturers can make their first sales by just picking up the phones. She'll then go into some tips on how to actually scale your business from there and how to learn from some of the best sales techniques in a very old industry. Now, on to the episode. Jan, welcome to the show. Thank
2: you so much for having me on the show. It's I'm mean, really excited to do this.
0: We really appreciate you spending the time. I know that you just finished and are in the process of launching your first book.
2: I know, so exciting. I'm I'm a big child budget, I'm afraid.
0: It, you know, it, it's great because you you, know, you were telling me the story beforehand where you thought you were going to retire. You know, you built this massive furniture business and other businesses, and you went into retirement. And then I guess it was an afterthought. You said, I really need to bring this knowledge out to the forefront, bring it to the public and help people, essentially the title of the book, scale for success.
2: That's right. Absolutely. Um, you know, I just there were so many things that had come up between me and chats for other entrepreneurs that I, you know, just made sense that if I could share, share it and there was a need for it. And I didn't think there was anything quite like it on the market. And so if it helps one or two people along the way, it's a it's a lovely thing to do. Well, I really
0: look forward to it. I understand it's out already uh, in the UK, and it's coming on July sixth uh, to the U.S. market to uh, scale for success. So I look forward to reading that. Let's jump into the subject matter that led you to the book, which is you know building uh, essentially a furniture company empire, and um, talking about sales because that's so critical. So many hardware startups are always thinking, "What are the? How am I going to sell the product? What are the best ways? And really, how do I do it?" And I'm excited today to dig in about Um, the methodologies that you used when you started with the furniture company to really achieve sales, and then how that evolved so that you could really scale and grow to be a a massive multi-million dollar business. Why don't you give us just a bit of a background of the history of the furniture company, then we'll jump into the sales tactics that
2: worked. Sure. Sure. When I started the furniture company, I had not that much experience in starting businesses, quite a lot of experience working for myself and doing odd, strange jobs, which necessarily in those days certainly tended to be selling something, sometimes only on commission or on pretty lousy pay, but nobody expected you to stay there very long. So, you know, it was, it was fine for a fill-in. Therefore, sales-wise was my sort of main experience, but in a fairly hard-sale way. I mean, I'd flogged, um, you know, sort of sandwiches around offices and wine on the phone and, you know, that sort of thing. So I, I, would, I knew what it was like to, to do phone sales. And I found myself on my own with two small kids when I was a single mom after a divorce. Very broke. And the only way to survive was clearly going to be to sell on the phone again, because I could do it while I looked after them. And so I, it, I, we'd, my, my ex-husband and I had done a bit of furniture very vaguely. So I thought, well, you know, that's something I know a minuscule amount about, and I mean a minuscule amount, honestly. And we, you know, so, and and we lived out in the children and I lived out in the country, you know, and there were lots of nice little craftsmen around. And I thought, this is great, I can buy in, you know, lots of furniture and sell it to interior designers, because I'd worked out that, and this is this is something that's relevant to your listeners. You know, I went the B2B route because I thought, you know, all that effort in building a product like that, you're going to have to do so much work on the sales side to sell directly to the customer. Whereas if you've got a returning B2B customer and you do it well, you know, then it's, it's far less expense and it makes a lot more sense and everything else. Um, Now, that was an initial problem because, of course, I didn't have any money. And uh, as they all pointed out to me, they really wanted to see a glossy brochure and I scraped together enough on a credit card to do what can only be described as a very nasty leaflet. Um, (laughs) But it got me started. And I literally built it up from those early years on the phone, hard selling. It was pre-computer days. And so I had to do it buying um, trade directories on a, on a Friday um, when I could put some money together and I'd buy, you know, sort of Bristol and London Northwest or something and add them to my mail shot list. And I telephone sold this stuff, and that was tricky because, of course, with a product, people want to see it and which is fair enough, you'd think. Uh, And uh, I didn't have the money to go out selling, you know, and I didn't have the money for childcare while I went out selling. So I had to look at it that I had to devise a way of convincing them to buy without seeing it, being so blown away that they wanted it anyway. And to me, that meant, and it was very cynical, we were talking about service earlier on, and I know we'll talk about it a bit more. But I'm afraid it was purely as a means to an end of a way to promote this stuff. But I started off thinking of this idea of service, which really hadn't got into fashion then. But I started saying to the designers, what would make your life easier? What are your pain points? And then it was pre-talking any of those days and it was very easy to discover that they were doing houses show houses and stuff wasn't turning up on time they couldn't get custom-made stuff to fit the place properly all these things um they couldn't get special colors because it was pre all sort of high fashion and they were beginning to want high fashion and they could only buy in you and mahogany, traditional, like, you know, the sort of repro stuff people's parents had had. And so there was this huge gap in the market, which which was luck more than anything, but luck and listening. Um, so, uh, you know, all of a sudden I was going, well, you know, I can, you know, if this, is, if this is me talking to you. You know, I can personally guarantee, didn't I call you again today? You know, I am a reliable person. I am a trustworthy person. I will take care of your business and your furniture needs.
0: That's amazing. Um, there's there's three really big things that stand out for me just in that part of the yeah. story. That's especially very important for hardware startups uh, when they're thinking about their journey. First and foremost, there's a lot of ways to sell. Today, I would say much more than back then, um, a lot of hardware startups don't really actively pursue or even consider the B2B approach. But the B2B approach is a very powerful avenue. Now, I'm not saying one way or is better than the other or whatnot, but it's always important to consider all your options. One thing that you mentioned about B2B is that it can scale quickly, reoccurring revenue, customer, reliable, all these sorts of things that come with B2B. But the second thing, which kind of highlights that is you worked hard without almost any assets to back it up to start selling direct. You just picked up the phone and went for it. And again, that's something that is still very powerful today. Right? We get caught up on on crowdfunding and all these things, which are, are very phenomenal platforms. Uh, you know, direct sales, lots of great stuff. But remember, you have many options as a hardware entrepreneur. Yeah, there's many different ways to sell. And here's somebody who built a multi 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 million dollar furniture empire uh, just through picking up the phone and calling, even with limited knowledge of the subject matter. And that, that leads me to a third thing, which I think is, is very important that you touched on too, is asking customers, those B2B customers, but it can be real customers, what their specific pain points are. And that's an incredible way to, first of all, have them open up. Second of all, build trust with them. And third, potentially land that sale if you can figure out a gap and as you said you then identified the gap so how did it grow and scale from that point when you did those three things well which is something i i heavily con- uh, you know suggest that most of our listeners that have a hardware startup think about as another option beyond many of the fancy options that are out there today for say.
2: absolutely i'm a gr- i'm you know, just as a, a side point, I mean, I'm, I'm a huge fan of bootstrapping on a, you know, minimal viable product, actually. And, you know, you can still do it and, and then you end up with the whole company at the end of it without having to go um, fancy funding routes and everything else. But uh, yeah, um, from there. I started, I mean, this is, you know, you were allowed to do all these things in this day and age, but all that time ago, but we started, a friend of mine started spraying furniture because I couldn't get it finished um, because it was just at the, at the tipping point of everybody wanting lacquered furniture. And so a friend started spraying it in a, another friend's barn, at just a corner of a barn. And so we grew the, so the finishing operation, I could put, buy it in though so it took a bit of convincing because uh, most of these local makers were used to making the repro furniture and they were going, you yeah, know what do you want to use to MDF that's chipboard? We don't want to touch that. <laughs> you know so uh, so yeah it was it was challenging to talk them into it but but we could get it made, but we could not get it finished um at all where you know in england at that point and so the only answer was to spray it ourselves which wasn't very good quality it must be said um but of course equally it was fairly unknown at that stage so you know nobody really knew what good quality to expect or not so we got away with it Uh, but and gradually that that side of things built up to a, a tiny farm building all of our own and two people spraying all day and one pe- person sanding and you know I thought I'd hit big business uh you know, and it was all it was all a lovely cottage industry actually the kids were small and it was it was a lovely way of life but uh of course things don't go to plan and by that time, I was buying the furniture in from mainly one person, one one company, and the guy who was running it was a little bit eccentric and decided to stop running it one one weekend, one Friday afternoon, and said, so "You know, I'm out. I've had enough. I'm uh, I'm going to retire, and uh, unless you want to take it over." And, I, you know just thinking i won't be able to do anything next week i won't have a business next week if, if he does this i said okay i'll take it over wow. so i bought it on my never never this thing um and therefore had two farm buildings and and this this making place i mean it was another barn and you know the roof leak the machinery was old you know it was it was a junk and a half but you know that was the start of my Making side as well. Wow! But then, of course, it got expensive because we had to put it under one roof, and you know, which is the only logical thing to do. And I didn't realise how expensive that would be. <laughs> and you know, it's the sort of cost of moving machinery alone. Uh, and so we had to all of a sudden go serious. I and mean, the only way I could dig myself out of that hole and that commitment. Was to sell far, far more, an awful lot more.
0: Is to sell a lot more just to keep yeah. keep that machine Absolutely. going. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. So, what
0: worked? What worked in selling? Um, you know, in the early days, and how did that evolve? And you know, what tips can you derive from that to pass on to folks who are just beginning that journey themselves uh, today as our
2: listeners? Absolutely. Well, I think the one thing I had learned by then, or a few things I'd learned by then. But one thing I'd learned by then was that if I wasn't going to go out face-to-face with the customer and I wasn't anyway going to get access to the end user, an awful lot was going to rely on your brochure. So while I was borrowing money busily to pay for the factory unit that I'd taken on and couldn't afford I borrowed extra to get a much better quality brochure. You, you know, if, I mean, now, of course, it's all online. It's a lot easier. But people judge you on your website in the same way. You know, it is your shop front. And I think that's really important. When money's tight, when you're starting up, it's it's very tempting to save on everything. But, you, you know, really, that's not a place to save within reason. Well, i one step...
0: One step almost further from that, uh, yeah. especially in today's day and age, is the video. And it's something yes. I haven't, uh, I don't think I've talked about on the show, but one of the big things when you're showcasing a product, especially in today's age, you'll notice that all the main, all the biggest Kickstarter crowdfunding, you know, Indiegogo yeah. campaigns, they have a, a great video. It doesn't have to be expensive, it just has to really clearly articulate what your product does, what problem it solves, all this sort of stuff, and essentially Absolutely. convince somebody to buy it. Now that video essentially is a modern day brochure in attachment yeah. to the website and whatever else. So um, you know, big thing for for startups. I know it it, it costs money, but Find a good company that, uh, and we're happy to to make referrals if somebody wants to know who good companies for this sort of stuff are, feel free to to reach out to to us at Backo Design anytime and ask, but we're happy to make the connections to folks who do really great web work, really good video work, all that sort of stuff. Not at a a super high cost, just stuff that's reasonable for startups, but it's an investment that you really need to to consider, even though you have other things. You're paying for development, you're paying for manufacturing. Mm. Don't forget- Put your product in the best light to those potential buyers. Otherwise, the whole thing's not worth it if you can't make any sales, right?
2: So right. I mean, you know, because I was so sales-oriented and sales-obsessed, because usually I was, in those early days, I was in so much debt, you know, so I was even more sales-obsessed than normal. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would say it, it comes really high on your list because for, for that reason, you know, no, no sales, no business. You know, no point in investing in hugely complicated product stuff if you're never going to sell it.
0: That's great. So what else worked? I mean, one talk about uh, picking up the phone and and calling. I know that's something that a lot of people are afraid of. And they think you have to be some sort of, you know, magical MBA student, uh, uh, you know, graduate with tons of experience. But, you know, speak about picking up the phone and just making that call, especially when you have something to sell, when you've built something, right?
2: I know, I know. It's, it, was, it was pretty scary at first because I felt so much rested on it. And I felt much more exposed to because it was my company and my name and everything else, as opposed to, you know, selling somebody else's stuff for six months, which I really couldn't care about. But um, I've got to say, but, you know, when I was very young. But yeah, it's, it's a tough gig initially till you get the hang of it you you know it comes down to lots of things I think it's it's a lot of old-fashioned rules you need to find out who the right person is to talk to but firstly but that means making friends with whoever is on the line at every single stage so many people go into it And, you know, go, oh, uh, you know, put me through to so and so. And, you know, they miss the major trick of the fact that, you know, whoever they first speak to is going to report back up the line and say, I've got this awful person on the phone or I've got this lovely person on the phone. And you can just change the way the conversation goes by making friends with every single person you speak to. I think that's really important from, from the first moment on. Perseverance is terribly important because people aren't going to buy from you for, you know, straight off on the first call that they might buy from you, you know, on the third call. And I believe the average on telephone sales is still on the seventh call. So, you know, you have to hang in there and be really pretty gritty about it um, to, to really get those sales in. But you don't have to sell all the time. You know, you view it as a new friend you're making that you're going to ring up and chat to. Find out lots of stuff personally about them, you know, their birthdays, their kids, where they've been on holiday, you know, so that you make the moment you ring them next time just after they've had a holiday. Oh, hi, did you have a nice time in wherever it was? You know, get all that personal stuff. So you're relationship building all the time. And then you can almost get off the phone without having sold, but just that much nearer to a sale.
0: You know what's amazing and, about what you're saying is that none of the th- none of the tips that you've suggested have anything to do with being some sort of crazy expert at selling on the phone. No. And that's that's the thing that I've seen with, with many of our clients who've taken that approach of just trying the direct sales method, whether it's getting a wholesale or distributor, even a partner or an investor. Uh, the, the, the same feedback always comes back. They say, oh, you know what? After I started doing it for a bit, after I, like you said, put in the persistence, was friendly to everybody up the chain, right? Know what your product is as well. Mm. Um, I said, well, it's, it's actually surprisingly surprisingly easy, or you can start seeing the results. It yeah. doesn't require some sort of fancy degree. And really, it just comes down to just just doing it, right? <laughs> the, the, the Nike <laughs> slogan, just just do it. And And that's especially when you've built a product or you're in production or you're about to be in production you've already got your magic. Your magic is the thing you've developed. And now all you need to do is tell that buyer, these are sophisticated folks. They know what they're doing. You don't need to have the best pitch in the world. If you can show them why your product is better or unique or you know a differentiator or whatever else, that somehow, some way it's going to potentially make them money, they'll figure out all the rest. And they know you're early stage in your startup. You don't you don't need to come across. In fact, that might even hinder you. Right? Coming, coming across too you, slick. Actually. Right? Yeah. Be authentic, believe in your product, just make the calls and magic starts to happen. And I also really like what you said as well about, um, yeah, you might not make the sale, but you have that comfort, uh, that you got a little bit closer and of yeah. course it's not going to happen with everybody, right? A lot of people are going to turn you down. That's where the persistence comes in. Don't worry about it. It's okay. Yeah, you only absolutely. need one yes. And every 50 knows. And if you make 50 calls, that means you got a sale.
2: Yeah, and you know that you've just got to bear in mind they may be having a really off day, you know. So just (laughs) the fact that they've been pretty poisonous to you once, you know, it's still worth trying again in three months' time, and you know, seeing how they are, and hopefully you'll hit them on a better day, and they'll be a bit nicer to you. They might even feel a bit guilty.
0: Right. So what uh, what helped you then scale from this part? So you've got you know you start selling some units. Um, the phone sales uh, thing is working for you, starting to, to make sales. You're, you're building this uh, joint facility now. Uh, how did you then, you know, what are some of your best practices that you use to then start scaling, to start selling better, uh, more efficiently, and really building in, uh, you know, customer value over time to, to scale into the, the massive sure. that it became?
2: Well, it, you know, it first sort of various transfer because we had to really concentrate on developing things that people wanted. You know, and that's in a way, though, it it was also a huge disadvantage for the fact that I was so ignorant about furniture was a plus in a way because I had to listen to what the customers wanted because I didn't know any better. But the good thing about it was I didn't have any ego because I knew I couldn't design. You know, so there wasn't some, you know, oh, look at me, look at my fabulous product. Um, You know, it was how can we develop this because the customer's asking for it, which was a really good way to put it about it and in in some ways it always made me laugh at when we did um customer comparatives to see what they thought which is something i really recommend i'm sure you do too on on bringing up asking your customer how they view you in comparison to the competition because it's what the customer thinks not what you think that matters um, but that that's just as an aside. But, you know, what made me laugh always was, you know, we had lots of weaknesses and so did everybody else in the customer's eyes. But what they was ranked us on was design and all the others were designers. And yet it was me who got the highest the score on design. But it was simply because I developed stuff based on what the customer wants. And of course, that is what they want. You know, they don't want some fancy product that somebody thinks is clever. They want actually what they need.
0: And that also comes back to the principle that you know, just build a great product for your customer. Focus on the product, which is the, which is the main effort, and then again, sales becomes easier. Yes, so absolutely. Uh, you know, if you have a phenomenal uh, guy, Kawasaki said it. Uh, he said, you know, if you build a great great prototype you have a phenomenal product, you'll never have to worry about another spreadsheet or business plan or anything ever again, right? So start first with creating a great product and then that'll very much lubricate the sales process or the fears even. Um, or, you know, maybe some of your inefficiencies or your inconsistencies or whatever else as you're relatively new, but Jan, you started again, like you said, with very little experience in the furniture industry, you had some experience in sales, but really that just trickled down to having the courage to just do it. And it worked. So how then do you use these principles to help scale the business? So you're starting to make, make some sales and now you really want to amplify that. How does, that, how does that change or what other things are there, that, you know, other tips that you'd have for folks that are looking to go, let's say, from selling their first few hundred units to then selling a few hundred thousand units? And does, does, do things change or are there other things you have to keep in mind? Or are there things you can plan for in advance to, to smooth that process?
2: I think obviously you could start looking at patterns, you you know, you get to know things like, um, you know, sort of when your peaks and troughs are in the year, all those sort of things, which helps you plan, even if it's done to a planning of machinery maintenance or whatever, you know, or people's holidays, it all gives you a... A minor bit of control, at least. I, but I, you know, we obviously had to. We, 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 got computers. That was exciting, you know. So we went digital. But uh, you know, that that I, I suspect most of your clients would have got there by now. Um, but no, I mean, you know, so a good CRM base obviously is is a huge asset. You know, uh, providing people use it. That's the only danger in a sales office uh, with. Sort of a lot of people who are who may be transient or on first jobs or whatever, you know, they don't necessarily put in the right information. Um, yeah, let,
0: let's unpack CRM a bit just for the the audience sorry, that yes. hasn't uh, dealt with. The CRM stands for customer relationship management software, and essentially it's it's just a breakdown of um, who your customers are and where they are in the sales funnel or sales pipeline or whatnot. And I really like the fact that you brought up. Um, the adoption internally, and that is key mm-hmm. to any CRM system, uh, making sure that every one of your employees who are on it are using it and then putting the data back in. Otherwise, it doesn't work. If the data is not there, you can't analyze it. If the data is not there, things are getting lost. So it's really important that you build those systems. And one of the easiest ways, I just think back in early days of macro design, or of course, like everybody, when we started this business, you know, we're, we're dealing with inventors. I, I was pretty much just one-on-one and uh, I'd have a a basic word document that had their information. So I could keep track of our, our call notes. But of course, as you grow and as we bring on sales folks and as it got more complicated, um, I was very, very early on adopting a CRM system, having that software, even though I remembered every single one of our customers and what they were doing, because I was dealing with them directly, even in the early days, I still put this in place because I knew at some point I won't be able to do that. And I would only and, and it would be important for remembering things, but also for finding efficiencies and improvements. And that's where doing it early, and there's so many pieces of software out there, they're so cheap, they're so easy to use now, user-friendly, there's really no excuse, even if you only have a dozen customers, just to start putting information in this, essentially, into this database. And that really is is a big part.
2: Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, I, I'm out of date on them now, of course now, But I think in even in those days, there were some that, I mean, Sage did a manufacturing one, which granted more you pay for it, but they would actually, you know, sort of work out your stock levels and anticipate things based on your sales and all sorts of fancy stuff, you know, which can make your life hugely easy from a production point of view as well
0: it's a but, big thing but, in yeah. scaling doing it early when it's easier the later you leave something when you're scaling the labor, later yeah. you leave because one of the biggest complaints that people say is oh man for me to integrate a CRM system right now do you know how much effort that'll take that that'll be impossible we, you know it'll be costly whatever else well i can tell you in, in a year or two years when you're twice the size, it's gonna be probably West. triple the complexity, the headaches, the problems. So the sooner that you start, the easier it is to flow. And that was one big thing with macro design. As we scaled from two people to 30 people, it was never really difficult. You hear all these horror stories of, of, you know, having growing the team. Well, for us, because we always were, were being proactive about it. Of course you have your little speed bumps here and there, but it was relatively smooth because we were constantly building in systems before we needed them. So that once we needed them, they'd already been, not only had they been built, but they'd been tested and refined to the point where you really need them then.
2: That is, that is so right. And it's, I mean, certainly on uh, some of the systems, it's it's absolutely singing from my hymn sheet. And I could have so done with you in on the manufacturing side back then. People are so lucky that, you know, a company like yourselves exists because, you know, I had so little to help. But it, it, sometime in, as I tried to scale on the actual production side, I went looking for help and, the stupid answers came back that, you know, you wouldn't believe, you know, unfortunately, you know, from the, you know, sort of we help manufacturing type companies in those days. Um, you know, so it wasn't easy to do. But systems, yeah, I agree. Very important with um scaling. And I think that that again is quite tricky because if you're in something creative, you you need the systems, but you can't afford to stamp out all the creativity. I remember getting very excited about Six Sigma And, you know, and it made perfect sense. Of course, you should stand there with everything in reach and, you know, minimizing all the work and everything, you know. But these were guys who liked, you know, they were used to working for senior ones in their barn in chaos with a dripping roof. They didn't want to be in a sterile atmosphere with everything in reach, you know, so it's it's. It's all a, bit, a little bit of a compromise to, to keep our creativity going, I think. I don't know what you think about that. I'd be interested.
0: Well, it, for sure, it's a balancing act because one of the things like, and I think this is important. I'm glad you brought it up. When it comes to processes, processes don't necessarily need to mean rigidity. In fact, it can mean the opposite. You can have a process built in to ensure that the creativity that worked within your firm continues to be so as you scale. They can be used in both angles, and I think that's one of the big misconceptions. First of all, with, with business owners or startups or, um, or managers, uh, they're concerned about the increased rigidity and whatnot of processes, but especially within, within team members thinking, oh, no, a new system. Well, that means it is more rigid, but if you think more strategically about it and you really start and try early. The key is to balance both those things, to have rigidity when it's necessary, but also using that same system to create creativity that may not have been there. Right? Maybe it's certain time slots that you have booked, which are just specifically for thinking. Maybe it's a way that it's programmed in to make sure that designers have enough time to understand things. Maybe it's having a reach to a library, uh, like you said, the Six Sigma, right? everything within reach. Maybe it's reach to creative tools or other assets. So for instance, at Macro Design, right? like any, our designers, we work as one big team across four offices. But at any point in time, if one of our designers wants expertise from another designer, that's actually built into the system into the processes that are built so they can immediately reach out, get something scheduled onto the books, or if they're at the office, just, you know, we've got a process for how you either are allowed to tap someone on the shoulder or not if they're in the, in the zone as you will. Right. So they're in the zone, leave them alone. Right. (laughs) There's a, we even used to have a, when we were in office uh, you know, now it's coming back, but um, we had a little essentially light system where, you would say, okay, if, if the light's on, like they're in the zone, don't bother them. They're doing hardcore field. engineering yeah. or whatever else. Like, unless it's an absolute emergency, let them be. But then as soon as that's off, it knows, well, they're doing some stuff, but they're also you know, open to collaboration, whatever else. Now, yeah. all those, those things, they can upfront sound, okay, well, that, that seems a bit rigid. But what you actually find is many of these systems are actually encouraging that growth, that creativity, that collaboration, all those things you're actually afraid that won't happen. And I can tell you, as you scale, if you don't have those in place, You'll lose a lot more of the good stuff and you'll get a lot more of the bad stuff so you're better to put the systems in place at first to make sure that you're and then the beauty of systems too is they can be improved and refined if let's say that light system isn't working well we can look at it as a systematic approach and say well why isn't it working we've tried it here's the data behind it okay let's Hmm. scrap it and move on to something that we think's better well without that data without those systems to understand how it's working then it's kind of just all up to opinion, which again, can be built into the system as one of the pillars of it. Right.
2: That's fascinating. And I, I absolutely agree with your original point that, you know, do it early, the systems, you know, the, the earlier, the better.
0: And all that plays into sales. Right, because yeah. sales—the sales is a system in a place. Right, what are the best things to say at the right times? What, what, you know, how do you, how do you get your list? How do you approach uh, certain situations that occur? And you build a lot of these things in, as especially as you scale. When you go mm-hmm. from selling yourself to your first salesperson to then a whole team of sales folks, I know. building all these things into play will will help you manage the most efficiency out of your sales team.
2: And, and like you, I, I remembered luckily, you know, every, all the details of my main clients because I remember getting, you know, you, there's this awful temptation to employ cheap people when you're starting out um, or, or sort of, you know, people, are, people on lower salaries. And, of course, you get what you pay for within reason. Yep. And I remember, you know, I was on all my information was stored on card index boxes because, of course, it was pre computer originally, you know, and I got copious notes on, you know, her eldest daughter's called January and, you know, they love to go to Tenerife every summer or whatever, you know, or every little bit. And, you know, I gave it to the sales office at that point, of which there were two or three of them and one person in particular to put it all into the system gradually over months. And they were going, yeah, it's going fine. And we're on B and, you know, everything else. And uh, that's what this girl's doing. And, you know, now it's finished. And I started to look for something. And, and I think she was about three quarters the way through. And I said, well, yeah, I can't find it. And she hadn't bothered to do it. And she'd torn up the cards and thrown them away. All that information gone. Wow. Got it.
0: Yeah, and that leads to another point. Like, make sure that as a manager, you're actively working Checking. to build these systems, a part of it, and then understanding how they work and testing them and refining them. It's, uh, you know, set it and forget it uh, with pretty much anything in business <laughs> <It> doesn't work. <laughs> Uh, so, it, it set it and then work with that division or department or person or whatever else to make sure that it's on track, on schedule, all that. That's a tough lesson to learn. And we all go through those uh, sorts of <laughs> things where we wish we had kept a closer eye on something or whatever yeah. else. But uh, yeah, good thing you remembered those details. And I imagine next time you built that system or put it in, that stuff was certainly in there. Right?
2: I checked a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
0: Well, that's great. Now, your book that's coming out. Um, completely about uh, uh, being successful in scaling. Um, uh, talk a bit about it and uh, and uh, when can we buy it, where can we buy it, uh, both worldwide and I know it's uh, being released uh, in the US shortly as well. Um, give us a bit of a, a kind of overarching um, review of that and uh, and then we'll say goodbye.
2: Well, I discovered that it was quite tough to scale. And, um, you know, not least because of a lot of the things that I hadn't been able to put in place as, I, as because I didn't know enough or because of the challenges of the changing markets and development and one thing and another. And, but, and, and I think like many entrepreneurs, you know, you think it's your fault when things don't, don't go right. You know, so, so the more I had the issues, the more I became convinced that I was absolutely useless at this and, you know, I should just just to sales. And then I got to talk to other entrepreneurs as I sort of bounced along the same level, not being able to go any further up and realized that actually this is quite a common problem that people get stuck between sort of maybe one mil turnover and five mil turnover particularly that they can't get out of that sort of situation because they haven't put foundations in place mostly you know which is, is why i was so excited when you you know you immediately said that about systems i mean that's that's one of the points that is so vital but it's it's so much setting yourself up right to scale and of course, with me drifting into it in ignorance, you know, I survived for a very long time. I mean, I ran the business for 20 odd years before burning out altogether. And um, but, you know, I was always fighting like crazy when it should have been so much easier by doing it right from the beginning. And uh, you know, I it's interesting to find so many people struggle with the same thing. So so I thought, you know, yeah, this is something I can really help with. I can you know, put put in put something together that will will help and guide entrepreneurs, make them more aware of the need to prep. Perhaps most of all, but in various areas, and and how to go about it, uh, and build their businesses if they want to scale. But be a, be more aware of it, and and how you're dealing with a very different entity. You know, as you've you found from going to one to thirty people. You know, you you just have to create. A whole new being, don't you?
0: Well, that's great. And your perspective on this is amazing because you really, you know, it was a school of hard knocks. You did this by learning the hard way on many of these elements and now, now can help entrepreneurs you know, avoid a lot of the pitfalls that that you saw, but also sees a lot of the opportunities that ended up making you incredibly successful at it as well. Um, what's the What's the title of the book? Uh, is there a, a website or download link or pre-order? Or what, what's uh, What's the best way for us to get it?
2: Absolutely. If there is, uh, the, the name of the book is Scale for Success. You can go to my website, which I know it was very kindly in the show notes below. So you can leap on there and you can download the first chapter, which is sitting there for free for you to have a taste of and see how you get on with it. And it's also available to pre-order from Amazon and Barnes & Noble and all good booksellers because it comes out from Bloomsbury Publishing. So you should find it in wherever your favorite haunt for buying books is.
0: Much appreciated. And I know that comes out in the US on uh, July the 6th. So I'll I'll, uh, look forward to reading it then. Jan, thanks again for being on the show. And uh, I really appreciate all the insights in terms of uh, selling and scaling through selling.
2: Loved it, Kevin. Loved every minute. I was fascinated to listen to you. Likewise. Thanks. Take care.
1: Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast. design.com for a free consultation from one of Maco Designs, 4 Design Studios from coast to coast. Thanks for listening and see you next time.